Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are picking up today where we left off in the story of Dred Scott, his wife Harriet, and their daughters, Eliza and Lizzie, who were at the heart of one of the most notorious Supreme Court decisions of all time. Last time, we talked about Dred Scott and Harriet and how they met and what their lives were like before petitioning for their freedom in a St. Louis court in 1846. Today, we are starting with what happened after the jury found them to be free in 1850. This will probably make the most sense if you have listened to part one. I mean, this, like, this is a narrative story. We're going to be building on several things that we talked about in that episode. In 1845, the state of Missouri was increasingly concerned about the impact of free Black people on the state and on the state's enslaved population. So the state passed a law that year intended to prevent freed people from burdening society, which also discouraged people from emancipating their slaves. By law, if you emancipated someone, you were often still responsible for supporting and maintaining that person. This applied to enslaved people over the age of 45 who were considered elderly, as well as men under 21 and girls under 18, along with anyone else deemed not able to work. When Dred Scott and his wife Harriet filed their petitions for freedom in 1846, Dred was probably already over the age of 45. By January 12th of 1850, when a jury in the St. Louis Circuit Court ruled that he was free, He was about 50, and he also had tuberculosis. And Eliza and Lizzie Scott were both under the age of 18. This meant that, of the Scott family, Harriet would be the only person that Irene Emerson, who claimed to be their owner, would not be legally obligated to support. So from Emerson's point of view, she was not only losing her valuable enslaved property and all of the profits from their labor— but she was also incurring a huge financial obligation in the form of the support and maintenance of Dred, Eliza, and Lizzie Scott. It seems as though Irene Emerson could have had a legal out in this whole situation. Her late husband, Dr. John Emerson, had purchased Dred Scott in about 1833. It's not totally clear whether Harriet's owner, Major Lawrence Tolliver, had transferred her ownership over to Dr. Emerson or whether he had freed her. But neither Dredd nor Harriet were mentioned in Dr. Emerson's will, nor were their children. But by hiring out their labor, Irene had been acting as though she owned them. So she had the responsibility to support them now, whether she liked it or not. So when a jury found that the Scots were free, Emerson went to the Missouri Supreme Court with an appeal. The reasoning, quote, First, the verdict was contrary to law. Second, the verdict was not supported by the evidence. Third, the instructions asked for by the plaintiff's counsel and given by the court were not according to the law and the evidence. Fourth, the court erred in refusing the instructions asked by the defendant's counsel. Emerson's attorneys, Hugh Garland and Lyman Norris, tried to make the argument that during those 12 years that Scott had spent in free territory, the late Dr. Emerson had been under military jurisdiction, which meant that Dred Scott was too. So this wasn't a matter for a civil court. It was a military issue. 
And on top of that, according to these attorneys, Scott's presence in free territory was a military necessity, not something that Dr. Emerson chose to do. So in their argument, Emerson should not be penalized for doing what he had to do by losing his enslaved property. This was one of the many aspects of this case in which Harriet had a stronger case for freedom than her husband did. Major Tolliver was no longer in the military when he was working as the Indian agent at Fort Snelling. He was, as you may recall from the first episode, still called major, but he was a civilian. And this whole, this was under military jurisdiction and a matter of military necessity argument did not really apply. The Missouri Supreme Court, which was at this point stacked with pro-slavery judges, allowed Emerson's appeal. And they also folded Harriet's case into dreads. Previously, they had been, these had been two different cases that were being heard at the same time. But now they would hear dreads case and whatever verdict they came to would also apply to Harriet and then by extension, their children. Attorneys on both sides agreed to combining the cases. But a motivating factor on Emerson's side was that if Dred Scott's case was the only one being examined, they would have no reason to include any testimony from Lawrence Tolliver or to resolve questions about Harriet's status when she married Dred. Tolliver was still living, and he certainly could have cleared up this whole question about whether or not he had considered Harriet to be free when he officiated at her wedding. But by removing Harriet from this equation entirely, they did not have to address that subject at all. It took more than two years for Irene Emerson's appeal to be heard by the Missouri Supreme Court. And in the interim, she moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, and she married Dr. Calvin Clifford Chaffee. Chaffee was an outspoken abolitionist and a doctor, and Irene Emerson apparently did not tell him about owning the Scots when they got married. Seems to be like a pattern with her husbands where they're not of the same mindset as her. That would seem like a recipe for not a great marriage, but what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) On March 22nd, 1852, the Missouri Supreme Court issued its decision. The court reversed the jury's earlier verdict, declaring that Scott was still enslaved. This threw out the long-held standard of once free, always free in Missouri. It's likely that the opportunity to overthrow that standard was one of the reasons that the court agreed to hear the appeal. The reasons for it were actually pretty flimsy. Yeah, you don't get to have an appeal just because, like, there has to be a reason for something in the in the previous trial that needs to be addressed. And the reasons that Emerson's attorneys built their appeal requests around were not great, but the court did it anyway. So with the help of anti-slavery lawyers, the Scott family once again tried to appeal their case, this time by going to the U.S. Federal Circuit Court in St. Louis. But according to the circuit court's decision, the state of Missouri had already declared the Scots to be enslaved. This was already settled by the state, so the federal court did not have a reason to hear the case. But when Irene Emerson left Missouri for Massachusetts, she had turned over management of her late husband's estate to her brother, John F.A. Sanford. His name is spelled S-A-N-F-O-R-D, but it is recorded with an extra D in it thanks to a clerical error in court documents. Sanford was living in New York while the Scots were still in Missouri. And this became the grounds for the Scott family's final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Their lawyers argued that the Scots were citizens of Missouri, but Sanford was a citizen of New York and was enslaving them. 
This made it a federal case rather than one for the state of Missouri. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court case after we first have a little sponsor break. Before the Dred Scott family's case made its way to the Supreme Court, Congress was hoping for some judicial guidance on the constitutional question of whether it had the right to outlaw slavery. Although Congress had outlawed slavery in various parts of U.S. territory under things like the Northwest Ordinance and the Missouri Compromise, both major parties had been reluctant to take any clear legislative direction on the matter of slavery when it came to the states. Instead, it had passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, which overturned the Missouri Compromise and allowed a territory's settlers to decide whether to allow slavery when that territory became a state. The question of whether Congress had the right to outlaw slavery was both a genuine constitutional question and a way of passing the buck. If the Supreme Court decided that Congress did not have the authority to outlaw slavery, then Congress would never have to address it, and a bunch of legislators would breathe a huge sigh of relief. President-elect James Buchanan also pressured the justices to take a unified stance on this matter, one that would take slavery off the table of political debate and would show the public that the court's opinion wasn't divided along geographic or ideological lines. But the makeup of the Supreme Court at this time made it really likely that any unified decision they might release would be in favor of slavery. Of the nine Supreme Court justices, five of them had been appointed by pro-slavery presidents. Several of them were also from families that owned slaves. Dred Scott v. Sanford was argued from February 2nd through the 18th of 1856. Dred Scott was represented by Montgomery Blair and George Ticknor Curtis and John F.A. Sanford was represented by Henry S. Geyer. The arguments included all the same points that we've already talked about, although based on the court's summary, the court was under the impression that Lawrence Tolliver was in the military when he was at Fort Snelling with Harriet Scott. If you remember from part one, he was not. The Supreme Court issued its decision on March 6th of 1857, and in a 7-2 to ruling, the court ruled in favor of John Sanford. Dred Scott and the rest of the Scott family had lost their case for freedom, and they had no other way to appeal it. In the Supreme Court's opinion, Dred Scott's case was outside its jurisdiction. This wasn't an interstate dispute because Dred Scott was not a citizen of any state. Quote, a free Negro of the African race whose ancestors were brought to this country and sold as slaves is not a citizen within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States. The opinion went on to say, quote, and not being citizens within the meaning of the Constitution, they are not entitled to sue in that character in a court of the United States. And the circuit court has no jurisdiction in such a suit. So, not only did Dred Scott not have the right to sue for his freedom in federal court, but under the terms of this ruling, no enslaved African and no descendant of an enslaved African had any right to sue in federal court about anything ever, because enslaved Africans and their descendants were not citizens of the United States. I'm repressing a growl. The court recognized that a state might make an African a citizen of that state, but it also argued that states had no power to grant U.S. citizenship. This contradicts Article 4 of the Constitution, which reads in part, quote, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. 
citizens of the several states had the right to sue in federal court. The court's decision also reinforced the fact that the U.S. Constitution condoned slavery, saying in part, quote, the only two clauses in the Constitution which point to this race treat them as persons whom it was morally lawful to deal in as articles of property and to hold as slaves. According to the court, the original framers of the Constitution had seen Africans as inferior and had not intended to give them any citizenship rights. So the Constitution did not apply to Africans apart from the portions that allowed for slavery. And continuing this argument, if Africans were allowed to become citizens, that would place an undue burden on society by forcing society to grant Africans all the other constitutional rights that white people had. The court's decision also spelled out that it did not matter that people's attitudes about Africans had changed since the Constitution was written. Quote, the change in public opinion and feeling in relation to the African race, which has taken place since the adoption of the Constitution, cannot change its construction and meaning, and it must be construct and administered now and according to its true meaning and intention when it was formed and adopted. This is not a term that was coined yet when this was written, but today we call this way of interpreting the Constitution originalism. But the court went on to explain that just because Dred Scott's case wasn't within its jurisdiction, that didn't mean it wouldn't go on to examine all the other aspects of the case. The result was an incredibly far-reaching decision that was definitely not just about whether Dred Scott was free. In the process of this examining all the various aspects of the case that it did not have the decision to say anything about, the court ruled that the federal government did not have the right to outlaw slavery in its territories because slave states had as much right to make use of the territories as free states did. Slaves were also considered to be property, and under the Fifth Amendment, the federal government could not deprive people of property. Following this line of argument, even though the Missouri Compromise had already been repealed by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, it was also declared unconstitutional under the Dred Scott decision. The court also ruled that this whole once-free, always-free precedent in Missouri law was unconstitutional because it denied slave owners their right to due process. Chief Justice Robert B. Taney authored the court's majority opinion, and the six justices who agreed with him also wrote their own supporting or separate opinions. These justices were James Moore Wayne, John Catron, Peter Vivian Daniel, Samuel Nelson, Robert Cooper Greer, and John Archibald Campbell. Although they had all voted with Taney, some of them followed very different lines of thought about how they arrived at their decisions. There are a lot of contradictions among all of these opinions. Justices Benjamin Robbins Curtis and John McLean were the only two who voted in favor of Scott. Both wrote their own dissenting opinions, which are both very long. Yes, they are incredibly long. Curtis, who was the brother of one of the Scott's attorneys, went on at length about the citizenship question. He examined how citizenship is determined from a lot of different angles, going all the way back to the Articles of Confederation and the original constitutions of several of the states that had been part of the 13 original colonies. He wrote, quote, At the time of the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, all free native-born inhabitants of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and North Carolina, though descended from African slaves, were not only citizens of those states— 
but such of them as had the other necessary qualifications possessed the franchise of electors on equal terms with other citizens. Curtis also wrote that while they were living in Wisconsin territory, the Scots, quote, were absolutely free persons, having full capacity to enter into the civil contract of marriage. And he disagreed completely that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. For McLean's part, he tore into the idea that non-citizens did not have the right to sue in federal court, saying, quote, it has never been held necessary to constitute a citizen within the act that he should have the qualifications of an elector. Females and minors may sue in the federal courts, and so may any individual who has a permanent domicile in the state under whose laws his rights are protected and to which he owes allegiance. He also tossed out the idea that Scott would have needed to go through some kind of naturalization process to become a citizen, as he had been born in the United States. He flatly dismissed the idea that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional as well, citing previous decisions that gave the United States jurisdiction to govern territories that did not yet have the ability to self-govern by having become states. McLean's dissent also brought up the Somerset case, which we talked about when we discussed Dido Elizabeth Bell. The Somerset case involved an enslaved man who was brought to England, which rendered him free, but was then captured and put on a ship to be returned into slavery. Although the Somerset case didn't end slavery in Britain, it was often interpreted as though it did. Altogether, there were 240 pages of opinions issued in the Dred Scott decision, and its impact on the nation was enormous, and we're going to get into that after we pause for a sponsor break. The decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford was praised in pro-slavery circles and denounced by abolitionists. Charles Sumner, who had been caned on the Senate floor on May 22nd of 1856 in retaliation for an anti-slavery speech, said, quote, I declare that the opinion of the Chief Justice in the case of Dred Scott was more thoroughly abominable than anything of the kind in the history of courts. Judicial baseness reached its lowest point on that occasion. This appeared in the New York Daily News on March 10th, 1857. Quote, the court has rushed into politics voluntarily and without other purpose than to subserve the cause of slavery. They were not called in the discharge of their duties to say a word about the subject. They consented with unseemly haste to dabble in the dirty waters of political corruption. On the other hand, newspapers in the South were overjoyed. The Richmond Inquirer celebrated with, quote, a prize for which the athletes of the nation have often wrestled in the halls of Congress has been awarded at last by the proper umpire to those who have justly won it. The nation has achieved a triumph, sectionalism has been rebuked, and abolitionism has been staggered and stunned. Congress and the president, who was inaugurated just days before this decision was released, had hoped that some judicial clarity on the subject of slavery would help hold the country together. Instead, it did the opposite. Abolitionists worried that the decision would lead to the rampant spread of slavery into what had been free territory. Free Black residents of the United States became terrified about whether they would be captured and sold back into slavery, similar to what happened after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Acts. The fact that the court issued such a broad and divisive decision, which took on so many issues outside of the question of Dred Scott's freedom, also undermined confidence in the court's abilities and its purpose. 
All this together reinvigorated the Republican Party, which had been founded by anti-slavery Whigs in 1854. And the decision became a huge part of the Lincoln-Douglas debates when Stephen A. Douglas and Abraham Lincoln were running for one of Illinois' seats in the U.S. Senate. Lincoln lost this election, but these debates helped make him a national name and positioned him for a presidential run in 1860. As we've talked about on the show before, several states threatened to secede from the Union if a Republican won that election. And when Lincoln was elected, they made good on that threat, which started the nation toward the Civil War. The Dred Scott decision wasn't overturned until after the war was over, with the passage of the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution. The 13th outlawed slavery and involuntary servitude except in punishment for a crime, and the 14th outlined rights of citizenship, including who had the right to be a citizen and what that right entailed. To return to the Scott family, as we said earlier, Irene Emerson's husband, Calvin Chaffee, was against slavery, and Irene had not told him that she owned slaves at all before they married. When he finally learned that his wife not only owned slaves, but specifically owned Dred Scott, which he apparently learned about from a newspaper, he was mortified. He had also been elected to the House of Representatives and had taken office on March 4th of 1855. So people, of course, pointed this out as a massive hypocrisy. This is one of those big, like, question marks in my head of like, really? <laughs> no idea? <laughs> But I I understand how these things happen. There's some, like, conjecture that he really did know and that he sort of tried to manipulate behind the scenes to to get this move through the courts. But, like, that's completely speculation. It's fascinating. Once the Supreme Court issued its decision, Calvin insisted that Irene make provisions to free the Scots. He arranged for the Scots to be sold to a member of the Blow family who would then free them. And Irene did ultimately agree to this, but only if she could collect all of the back pay that the Scots had earned while in the custody of the St. Louis County Sheriff. That amounted to roughly $750. The Scots were formally liberated in a St. Louis court on May 26, 1857. That is the part of the outline where my original note-taking became all capital letters of she would only agree to free them if she got all their back pay, are you kidding me? This terrible purse, like all capital, lots of exclamation points. It took me a while to then make that be intelligible sentences. Once they were free, Dred Scott worked as a porter at Barnum's Hotel in St. Louis, and Harriet took in laundry. But Dred died of tuberculosis after less than 18 months of freedom on September 17th of 1858. Taylor Blow arranged for his burial at Wesleyan Cemetery, and then when that cemetery was abandoned, had his remains exhumed and reburied at Calvary Cemetery. Harriet Scott lived to see the end of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. She died on June 17, 1876, and she was buried at Greenwood Cemetery in St. Louis. Although a headstone was placed in the cemetery to commemorate her in recent years, her exact resting place is not known. Today, there is a statue of Dred and Harriet Scott outside the courthouse where their case was tried. Today, Dred Scott has become kind of a political shorthand for any court decision that someone thinks is egregiously bad for whatever reason. 
It's been brought up as a comparison for everything from Oberfeld versus Hodges, in which the court ruled that same-sex couples have the right to marry, to Citizens United versus FEC, which ruled that corporations have a right to free speech in the form of political donations. Anti-abortion groups and legislators also frequently compare Dred Scott to Roe versus Wade. Just as one example, Senator Orrin Hatch characterized the two cases as indistinguishable during Ruth Bader Ginsburg's confirmation hearings to be a Supreme Court justice in 1993. Senator Carol Mosley Braun, at the time the only black senator, objected to that comparison at the time as personally offensive. That is Dred Scott versus Sanford. Uh, I wish more people remembered that it was also Dred Scott's family, because I know that when I uh, first studied this case in American history class, it was definitely framed as Dred Scott was enslaved and he sued for his freedom. And there was no mention of the fact that there was an entire family involved in the whole situation. Yeah, same. It it was definitely the very simplified and pared-down version of the story that I got. Uh, I have some listener mail to close us out. It's from Karen, and it is about Operation Babylift. And Karen says, I've just listened to the latest Six Impossible Episodes podcast about evacuating children. I was a young adult when Operation Babylift occurred at the end of the Vietnam War and remember hearing about the crash in the news. You never mentioned the type of aircraft that crashed or that it was the military cargo plane. It was a C-5A Galaxy uh, manufactured by Lockheed and the largest cargo aircraft in the world. The cargo area is large enough to load uh, the biggest cargo that the military has, and the passenger area sits at the top of the plane. I believe it has around 70 permanently installed passenger seats. I'm a retired Air Force loadmaster. I was assigned to the C-141B, also made by Lockheed, and the C-17A. I have flown as deadhead crew on the C-5 a few times. What didn't come across very well in the podcast was that the cargo area of the C-5 and all military cargo aircraft is large and can be configured for use by passengers. In addition, there are procedures in the manuals for emergency evacuation that direct the loadmasters to seat evacuees on the floor and secure cargo tie-down straps across them and keep them in place. Tie-down straps are long nylon straps with a ratchet device to tighten it a little wider and thicker than the car seat belts that we use every day. There were likely no seat pallets available, so the crew used the evacuation procedures to secure the passengers. They were headed to Clark Air Base in the Philippines, so it would have only been a two-and-a-half-hour to three-hour flight to sit on the floor like that. Just thought I'd throw that out there. You may have made a conscious decision to leave out the details of the type of aircraft and that the crew was military. I agree that the operation was politically motivated from the very top level of the government. And given the disaster that the war had become by that time, it can also be called a poorly thought-out publicity stunt. But the air crew and the medical crew were following orders. We take an oath to obey the lawful orders of the officers appointed above us. Thanks for letting me vent a little. In 22 years as an aircraft crew member, I felt gutted by every crash, and still do, and have lost friends in some of them. This particular crash is part of the history of the relatively small cargo hauler community, and although it happened before my time in the Air Force, it is still keenly felt by those of us who haven't benefited from the lessons learned. Karen. Thank you, Karen, for sending this note. Um, I had thought that it was clear in the episode that that was a military aircraft and a military mission. Um I didn't include the specific type of the plane because I feel like for the majority of our listeners, that is not going to help paint the picture at all. <laughs> like, I don't think most people know what specific uh, military cargo planes look like. Um, and to clarify something that's in here, in, in regards to evacuating children and adults, 
people would have been sitting on the floor and and secured down with cargo straps. But in this case, these were babies. Like, they were babies that were laying on the floor in groups. Um, so it, it wasn't quite as, as simple as, um, okay, this thing is sort of like a seatbelt and we have a few hours of trip on the floor. It was like, here are groups of babies that are being secured with cargo netting. Uh, so anyway, thank you for that clarification, Karen. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest as Missed in History. Our website is at MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes to all the episodes that we ever worked on, uh, that Holly and I have worked on together, rather, including, in this one, links to all of those 240 pages of court opinion in Dred Scott versus Sanford. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 